Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, October 17th of 2023, where lay persons and pastors gather every week at about 6 a.m. Eastern Time from wherever we may be to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. This Sunday is October 22nd, and we are working to be faithful to Lectionary Year A. Here's how it works. We prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from this week's leader, and then in this podcast we share question and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. Bill Hall in St. Petersburg, Florida. And I'm Don Upton. I'm in Omaha, Nebraska. And our lead today is Bill Hall. He's put together some questions for us and he's going to read the scripture. Hello, my friend. What's the good news? Uh, The good news is it's cooler here in Tampa. And I'm with my colleagues, and I've got a fresh cup of coffee. And we're about to take a deep dive into a challenging portion of Scripture. A quick reminder of our journey for the last few weeks through Matthew. Uh, In chapter 21, uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem for that week leading up to his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. A lot happened in this week, and all that we've been reading and reflecting on occurred in the temple. So that context undergirds all of the discussions we've been having. And recently we looked at three parables. First, the two sons, one who initially refused his father's instructions but later obeyed. The second son uh, agreed but did not follow through. Then the landowner who established a vineyard, fenced it, planted vines, equipped the property, turned the oversight over to tenants who then reacted with violence, even killing the landowner's son when the landowner wanted to gather his profit. And then last week, uh, Sarah led us through the challenging parable of the wedding feast. Those who were invited who refused to come, and so the king issued the invitation to everyone in the streets, good and bad, who would participate. And in one sense, as I noted last week, with each story, there's an escalating level of dire consequences for those who disobey. And uh, today's story is that I'll read in a moment is recorded in very similar fashion in all three synoptic gospels. We're going to hear from Matthew 22. It's in Mark 12 and Luke 20. Having said that, I will read the passage, the gospel passage for this coming Sunday, Matthew 22:15 to 22, from the New Revised Standard Version updated edition. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth, and you show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, 
Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought Jesus a denarius. Then Jesus said to them, whose head is this and whose title? They answered, Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, give therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. The word of God, thanks be to God. All right, Sarah, in a moment, I'm going to come to you with the first question. And I will note for our viewers and listeners that our goal is to stir our own thinking and hopefully yours in some way. Uh, there are many other ways to approach this, but uh, this, these three questions grow out of the soil of my meditation and study this week. First question, the Pharisees sent their disciples and Herodians to Jesus, and they characterized Jesus as sincere, truthful, showing deference to no one, and not regarding people with partiality. Now, as suggested in the passage, even we hear these characterizations of Jesus by the Pharisees' spokespersons, as insincere flattery intended to put Jesus off guard and to trap him. However you interpret the questioner's motives, do you believe these attributes to be accurate of Jesus? And if so, how do they inform and shape your life of faith? Sarah? I'm thinking about the, the questions, the people asking the questions. Herodians and Pharisees were considered oppositional to each other. So it's interesting that they've come together to challenge Jesus. And and I think that that's kind of their way of forming a coalition that appears to be um, in opposition to Jesus. So that's the first thought. The second thought is when... They describe Jesus as sincere, truthful, showing deference to no one, and regarding all people with no regarding not regarding people with partiality. Um, I think these are things that they've been accused of not being. So um, I find it interesting that they probably and the question would be that are they flattering Jesus? Or is this intentional um, conversation to uh, entreat him to, to look upon them favorably? Either way, I like your question because it asks us to consider how we see Jesus and how the scriptures give us stories and information about Jesus that can be confirmed by these observations. So I've I fall into the camp of, um, I believe Jesus came to save each and all, the good and the bad, um, the the insincere and the sincere, the truth tellers and the, the falsehood weavers. Um, I think that that's really our dilemma 
And so I believe him to be sincere, to be truthful, to be loving and loving each and, and all equally. And I think that um, my faith centers on the notion that all have fallen short and stand in need of the loving grace that's being offered. Um, we all need to be redeemed. The question is, can we receive the grace and and work towards something instead of staying where we are and enjoying the pig pen that we find ourselves in on a regular basis? So it's a question of, do we want to change our lives and move toward that promise of it being in relationship or are we content to see the goodness offered and go, but I don't really want to change. So I think there there's something to be said here for um, their observation of truth, even though it was probably considered slanderous or their intent was to be overly um, complimentary. So I, I think it's interesting that they indeed do honestly speak of Jesus. Thank you. And yes, thank you. And I appreciate your reminder that the two groups challenging him were oppositional. I believe you is your word. Politics made strange bedfellows. <laughs> and there's that idea the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, so that that's an interesting dynamic. Thank you, Sarah. Don, your thoughts. I think first it's a comment on the human condition. Everybody. Uh, Bill, in the past you talked about, you know, let's let's play the role of everybody in a parable, for example. And I think this is a comment on the human condition. I think in the world all of these things are in play. Sincerity is in play. Who is sincere? Who is not? Am I sincere? Uh, there's an intentionality about being sincere or not being sincere. But that's part of living, ain't it? <laughs> Truthful is in play every day. What is truth? What is not? And I'm being asked in my life to be the judge and jury. At least I think I should, right? <laughs> I'm saying that to be facetious, you know. Oh, I have to make the call on that. Uh, deference, who we defer to or not, is in play. And Partiality. It is a world filled with partiality. Uh, on any given day, who must I be partial to or not? To save my own neck, to make a dime, to impress people. So I think, first, it's just a comment on the human condition. This, all this abounds, the issue of sincerity, truth, deference, and partiality. There we are. There's life. So I just want to take it to that first. And then next, with Jesus, nothing is in place. Sincerity is not teetering. Is Jesus going to be sincere today or not? Truthfulness is not teetering. Deference is not is not teetering. Partiality. I'm going to make a note on partiality real quick. Where I think there is an element of that in the ministry of Christ in order for us to learn and 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 to be taught. But it's more of a mechanism. So none of these are hanging in the balance. Jesus has his face set upon Jerusalem. This is the plan. This is the promise. It will be done, and it will be finished. Nothing is in play. Uh, so I, I, I'm, at least I'm attracted to that, that thinking here. Uh, in terms of deference to no one, uh, 
later on in your questions, Exhibit A, the coin, no one. Give, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In your next question, Bill, give to religion. What is religion? And it raises the question of whose is it? And it's all things. It's a state of mind. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's no difference. There's no difference in the world for Jesus. With one funny exception, his mother. You know, there's, it's a different, you know, but, you know, there's, there's not, the wine's gone. We need to do something about it. I'm, <laughs> I'm busy. Uh, but I, I, I think nothing here is in play at all. And the idea of deference, I think, is especially important to what's about to happen with the coin because it is about respect and esteem. It's about someone with greater standing, the way that we use it in English. It is a, hand, it is a natural handoff that you would make to someone else. And I think the coin says, no, all things are created by God. That, that's my thought there. Uh, thank you. Uh, and it is the human condition. Uh, what uh, prompted this question as I reflected on the passage and prepared what I would send to my colleague, it struck me for the first time that there's an irony in this. It's The passage identifies that there was malice and Jesus saw their hypocrisy. The irony is what they said as flattery and entrapment was true of Jesus, I believe. And they became caught in that vice. Be careful what you accuse your enemy of. <laughs> you know, in one sense, it may be true. Um, Jesus demonstrates that this sarcastic description of himself by the Herodians and Pharisees, the descriptions are true. And there are many, many passages we could refer to, uh, but one that I will offer is in Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 2. This is Paul later reflecting on the person and mission and characteristics of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God and listen to these descriptions of the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I think I've made the point before, often in Scripture, particularly the New Testament Greek, perfect would be a a little more accurately translated in today's language as a wholeness. It, it's not about everything is picture perfect. It's that there's a wholeness. And just imagine what if the leaders at every level in life ask, what is the greater good? What will create wholeness for everybody? And uh, thank you again, Sarah, for your leadership in adult faith formation, that team at the church, and your leading us through three weeks of reflection, further reflection on the parable. This coming Sunday, uh, our one of our other pastors, John Ryder, uh, will begin a series of classes on a book entitled Short Stories by Jesus 
the enigmatic parables of a controversial rabbi <laughs> by Amy, Amy G. Jill Levine. And it's a fascinating book. I'm about halfway through it. Early on, she says, she refers to the mantra, the gospel is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And she says, the parables afflict the comfortable. <laughs> they are not particularly comforting. And the parables we reflected on recently were not comfortable. And there's a term, I don't know when it was coined, <clears throat> but it talks about speaking truth to power. And Jesus did that in such a powerful way. He didn't demean them. He didn't, he did call them hypocrites, yes. But he called them to account for their own thoughts and behaviors. And in today's world, not just political leaders, but maybe a, particularly them, many of them want to be seen as being an icon, somehow imbued with power that makes them free of being challenged. Notice how often at least some political leaders interrupt somebody who's challenging them and speak disdainfully of them. So, yes, the descriptions, even though hypocritical, are true. And Jesus calls us to a new way of life. Now, uh, second question, and Don, I'm coming to you first in a moment. Biblical scholar Michael Lee, in the Connections Year A Lectionary Commentary, states, quote, It is often said that one should not mix politics and religion. Yet this gospel passage is filled with both politics and religion. Whether political or religious, the exchange about Caesar's coin raises questions about obedience, loyalty, and authority that demonstrate how faith has an inescapable political dimension, but not a partisan one. End of quote. Don. Share your opinion about Professor Lee's statement and note how you understand Jesus' response to the question and how does that shape your life of faith today? Don? It's a, it's a, it's a challenge. I think about this all the time. Uh, and just to get discussion going, because sometimes we say we agree or disagree with different authors or with each other sometimes, I will, if I, if I understand what he's saying, I will strongly disagree uh, because I believe he's parsing religion and politics. And I live in a world where if there's a Venn diagram, P for politics and R for religion, not only intersect or touch each other, but they completely overlap. And I believe Jesus is addressing religion, little R, politics, little P, all the time. And the world I live in, the human condition, is those go hand in hand. And I can substitute the words for each. So uh, I, I think getting into parsing those creates problems itself. It creates a good and bad, a right or wrong, a good and evil. And I don't think uh, that's not the world I'm familiar with, with little law for religion. Uh, I will hold out to you if Jesus said, looking at the coin, if he was looking, because there's religion in that coin, ain't it? There's politics in that coin, there's religion in that coin. Uh, that declarations of who the Caesar is. Uh, I think Jesus could easily have said, give to religion what belongs to religion. 
Jesus could have said, give to politics what belongs to politics. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. I think the Caesar on this coin represents, if it's a Venn diagram and this, the two circles have merged, there's that, let's imagine the coin is actually round. Some, many were not, but let's say it's round, and those Vens have come together on that coin. And within that coin is precious metal, wealth, conversion of wealth into what's expected by politics, conversion of wealth into what religion is supposed to look like. There it is, all in one. And Jesus says, all right, give to religion what belongs to religion. Give to politics what belongs to politics. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And uh, I, I, so I, I'm, if I understand what he's saying, uh, uh, the, uh, he says religion is not a partisan one. It sure is. I think Jesus is asking for a different state of mind a different state of faith to understand that. It's a challenge. I think people in that room, people who listen to that, you know, mouths are aghast. People were impressed. Different reactions was they're also going, wow, right. In the beginning, God, period. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, not the, re- not the religion of man, not the religions of humankind. In the beginning, not the politics. In the beginning, not weaponization of religion. In the beginning, not rep- weaponization of politics. In the beginning, God, one God. That's it. That's what I got, Bill. Thank you, Don. Sarah, your thoughts on Michael Lee's observation and how your life of faith is shaped today. So if this particular question could be converted into glasses, and we're asked to put on lenses that draw our eye to a particular thing. Let's just say we have religion, we have politics, and we have, I'm going to call it monetary exchange, okay? And, and I wouldn't call it religion. I would call it faith. Um, what glasses you pick no, up? No fair. No fair. No fair. <laughs> Well, to say, okay, I'm just playing. Thank you. <laughs> but my thought is, depending on what lenses you pick up, it's what you see, right? It's what focuses your eye. And so if the lens that you wear frequently is politics, that's what you see. That's, that's the root of what you understand about the world and how you receive the world and, and, and how you interact with the world. If the lenses that you pick up are monetary exchange, then, then wealth will be what you see and, and mon- many, money management will be what you see. If faith is what you pick up, then those things fall into those orders as far as priority goes. So I think this is really a question about the first commandment. I think that this is a conversation around what gives what do you yield priority to in the world in which you live? And what takes precedence? If politics takes precedence over your faith, you're going to look one way. If your uh, pursuit of money takes precedence over your faith, you're going to have a very different outlook, but your behavior will be obviously in the pursuit of that. Um, I think if the faith is the priority, then you're going to start to see these other things as expressions of your faith rather than 
your faith as an expression of wealth or your faith as an expression of politics. And I think that's essential. So I think it's you shall have no other gods before me is an underlying statement here. And I think that's the challenge at, at the feet of, of the, or at the, the root of the conversation between the Herodians, the Pharisees, and Jesus. They're, they're trying to point out to him, right, the imperial tax, which is really kind of where this conversation begins, stems from the idea that Rome taxes all the people to pay for their own occupation, right, to pay for the Romans to be there to keep everything in order. So that's how um, everybody's presence in that time, the Roman occupier presence, was supported. So this idea of is it lawful to pay to Caesar this this particular imperial tax? And so he's really they're really drawing him in to a conversation about is politics more important than faith? And and I'm sure people were asking that question because it was like I can barely afford to feed my family if I don't pay my imperial tax, they're gonna they're gonna come and get me, and then my family will be in destitution because I can't be the one to support them. Um, so I think it's important to to say okay, it's real tempting by this world to say let me pick up the lens of wealth because I've got to have wealth to make things work. And then the conversation may be I've got to understand politics and play politics if I don't my family will be, you know, in, put in dire straits as well. And I think that's the challenge of living in the world where we live is the frequency of urgency. And, and I'm going to say, in some circles, everything is urgent, but nothing is important. I think that's what this circle is about. It's about stay the course. You shall have no other gods before me. If you put on the, the lens of faith, everything falls into... I want to say alignment, if lack, lack of better words. Does that answer your question? Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, yes. Uh, the part of the quote by Michael Lee that captured my attention was the last phrase, faith has an inescapable political dimension, but not a partisan one. Now, Don, if I understood you correctly, you were challenging the not a partisan one. Um, I will repeat something I said several weeks ago. Our English word politics, political, comes from two Greek words, one of which is polis, the village or the city. And literally in Greek it means managing the life of a village or a city, which in an ideal world is nonpartisan. Now, I, uh, in a moment, am going to read a quote because it well summarizes and with some economy of words where I come out on this. A little background. It's a Christian Century article from September 2017 by Debbie Thomas. And in this article, and note the date, 2017, she notes the challenges she faces. She's female, black, and a woman religious leader. And she acknowledges some of the pressure and challenges she faces because of 
those characteristics I just mentioned. She chooses to identify that about herself. And then she talks about how disturbing the environment was then, but her journey uh, in that, and I will read the latter part of a quote from that article. Figuring out my taxes is the easy part. What is much harder is living out my political convictions with a Christ-like humility, with a compassion that embraces my political other as a brother or sister. But if I really belong to God, if I really am fashioned in God's image, then I need to practice my faith and my politics in ways that reflect who God is. Whether I like the current resident of the White House or not, it is not a question of backing down or of being dishonest or of watering down my beliefs. It is a question of remembering that the God whose image I bear is a God of love. So, yes, by all means, give the emperor what belongs to the emperor. But remember that our first debt is to a power that will remain long after earthly empires rise and fall. Our first highest debt is to love. I resonated with her struggle. Um, It is easy to become partisan in the sense of my political views based on my faith are superior to another Christian whose political views differ greatly. And doing that with Christ-like humility is very, very difficult. And I appreciate and commend that article to you for someone who really wrestles with that question. So um, how does it shape my life of faith today? I appreciate Debbie Thomas's challenge to live with Christ-like humility, especially in the face of how toxic the environment is today. Question three, and Sarah, I'm going to come to you first in a moment. Various scholars note that at the time of Jesus, taxes had to be paid with Roman currency. And the denarius that Jesus asked to be shown was inscribed with the image of Tiberius with the words, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, high priest. Thus, when followers of Jesus paid Roman taxes, they were utilizing a means of exchange that contained a statement they would not have believed and by Ten Commandments standards was an idol. Therefore, they were accommodating themselves to their culture's expectations by compromising their own faith standards. Sarah, what accommodation to political and social culture in our lives do you perceive are made by you and other persons of faith? Sarah? I have to say, of all the questions, Bill, this is the one that brought a lot of cascading thinking to my head. Um, So it made me think about our daily activities and how does the business of the world encroach on the faith that we practice? Making faith the primary thing. So how does everything else start to interact with that or conflict with that? 
So the next question I said was, well, what do we commit the bulk of our time and energy to? If it's work, does that work reflect our faith or test it? If at home, does our home life reflect or test our faith? It might be how we interact with each other versus interacting with a business system. If we stand in relationship to each other, or it's the way we stand in relationship to each other, um, and the way we keep our promises and our commitments that speak to our faith. If we're at school, do we seek the truth with active curiosity? Do we expect the best in others or the worst? Do we hear their counsel as helpful rather than critical? Do we find ourselves more disarmed or more armed for conflict? On what do we spend our money and how does that reflect our faith? David Lowe, in his blog on this particular passage, suggested um, a practice he tried um, when he participated in a leadership seminar they they took a sharpie and they put a cross on their credit card so that every time they turned or pulled that card out to spend something or or to pay for something the question was at, at their feet what how does this purchase reflect your faith so i thought that was really an interesting exercise um is it common to compromise one's faith and acquiescence to power? Or is it or resistance in the name of fidelity to God? So I, I, I personally have felt this struggle in politics a lot. Is How does my vote endorse my faith? Not endorse a candidate. How do I use my vote to speak for my faith? And what are we comfortable normalizing as acceptable and honorable? And in our household, lying was unacceptable. In our household, character was everything. Integrity was important. Be who you present to the world. Don't be something else. So when I vote, those are things I consider and I consider carefully. Who can manipulate me into taking action contrary to my faith? Um, and what are those triggers? And, and what what people can do, usually I look for the thing that people throw out most often is, aren't you afraid? And I'm like, afraid of what? And that usually answers my question on how I'm going to vote, how I'm going to spend my money. What happens when the court of popular opinion runs counter to what you believe and value? And, and I think we're challenged by that in what I would say a lot of marketing material. I think we're challenged by that in business practice. I think we're challenged by that in the language we use when we speak to each other. And when, when we're invited to a loyalty perspective or a loyalty position, how do those things point to what I believe and who I believe in? And then I fall back onto... You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Everything else is just tertiary conversation. If you do those things, love the Lord and love your neighbor. It's as simple as that. 
Thank you, Sarah. And I did discern your energy. <laughs> you said this third a lot, and thank you for your words and, and your passion. Um, accommodations, we all make them. You said that clearly, Sarah. We still pay taxes, a part of which goes to provide services and support for persons in need. We need to remember that. There are those who seemingly want to say all taxes are evil. In spite of all the problems, money is used uh, to help. FEMA goes in and helps people in storms, and there are many other examples. Jesus, therefore, did not condemn paying taxes. Uh, Therefore, we rightly infer that as followers of Jesus Christ, we have an obligation to obey the law and to pay our fair share. Um, And there are ways we resist accommodation. I grew up in a culture um, that honored separation of church and state. I think that is getting blurred harmfully, and I think we should resist that accommodation. This parable goes to the heart of that. Um, We want our faith to inform, as you said, Sarah, how we use our vote. The separation of church and state doesn't mean we are off the hook as citizens. But anyway, I will leave that there. I think that is an honorable tradition that needs to be reaffirmed and strengthened. Um, And Jesus had overtly and directly challenged the religious authorities by driving the merchants out of the temple. He engaged in what we might today call civil disobedience. He stood for that this is to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves and robbers. Uh, now Jesus responds in a different way to political and military authority and does so in the presence of supporters of Rome, the Herodians, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Thus, Jesus is face-to-face with a dilemma we all encounter. That was another insight to me. We stand with Jesus. In effect, two different kingdoms. Uh, I don't want to press that too far, but there are challenges here. Now, I think not all accommodations are bad. In my lifetime, quote, contemporary worship emerged, and I remember the controversy over that. And our church has excellent contemporary worship and traditional worship. We, I like to think, honor both. And a quick, true story. In the early 1970s, I accepted a call to a church that had gone through some real challenges. And to their credit, the the search committee was totally transparent and let me know the challenges I was facing. They forgot to mention one. Unbeknownst to my wife and me, a simmering controversy in the ni- early 1970s was whether or not women could wear pantsuits to church. And the older women said, never. There were younger women who were bank managers and school teachers who wore pantsuits in work, but they didn't come to church because when they, I mean, wearing that because when they did, they were criticized. 
guess what the new pastor's wife showed up the first Sunday wearing? <laughs> a very stylish pantsuit. And the word was, that's when we discovered it was a controversy. Well, I guess if the preacher's wife wears one, it's okay. I'm not making this up. <laughs> uh, and so then it became okay. When I grew up in Florida, no air conditioning. Every Sunday I wore a coat and tie to church, even in the summer. That has changed. So not all accommodations uh, are are bad, and it's it's a process of discernment that that's difficult even within the family of faith. And I will end with the way the passage ends. When they, the Herodians and Pharisees, heard Jesus's response, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. In Luke, it ends, they were not able in the presence of the people to trap Jesus by what he said, and being amazed by his answer, they became silent. And maybe some silence and reflection is appropriate for us also. Don. You used the word accommodation I struggle with all week, and uh, I, I tried to figure out how to address it. I know it's wrapped up in the word is favoritism or a kindness to another. And I, I'm agreeing with both of you on the use of accommodation. I think the, the accommodation part of this, we blow out of the water, another part of the human condition that I don't know about you folks. I, I'm, I'm living in a time in a world where uh, accommodations feel more like minefields. Uh, you know, I wake up worrying about, you know, what what am I choosing to say? What do I choose to wear? Who am I going to offend? Who am I not? And I, you know, my, my fellow followers of the way are listening very carefully. And uh, I think there's a fine line between, you know, uh, service and uh, and someone sitting in the chair of the judge. Well, you didn't get that right. You didn't get loving your neighbor right today. Try again. Who's saying that? You know, am I saying and thinking something like that? I think there's real counsel here. Uh, you know, am I, are we sanctioning each other uh, when it comes to accommodations and the, and the basic business of living? So, Bill, you wrapped up with the word discernment, and uh, and I think that's what, for the coin, what I, I think I feel called to think about. What, where, where are you actively praying ceaselessly uh, in this position, a posture of engaging in Christian discernment and all we do? Because I think if if not, it can turn into a world filled with minefields, and I'm frozen. I'm terrified. And that's not what Christ asked. That's not what he asked of his disciples, and that's not what he asked of the church. He isn't like, test thyself. Sanction thyself. Get it perfect. Right. Oh, I can't think clearly if that's the world we're living in. He wants clear thinking. He wants us to be seekers. We are to seek justice and love kindness and to go out and keep going out and going out the door and meeting people and being open. And Sarah, like you're saying, the kind words were open, receptive. And all of this just seems, and of course, there's, this is a minefield for Jesus. He's not accepting it when he asks him the question. It's just filled with all kinds of dangers. And he 
Uh, and I'm thinking back to Bill Wallace, who uh, led uh, the lectionary class at Palmasia Presbyterian Church for generations, and we honor him with these discussions. I don't know if he actually said this, but he probably did that, you know, get bogged down in the minefield of this story, which has been, I think, distorted and misused in so many ways about how you parse your life. Like, you know, is Jesus things and not? It's like, no, God created the heavens and the earth. That's not what it is. When I think back to Bill, I think he said, I think he said something like, you know, this, Jesus is telling a joke. This is funny. You know, they want to take this coin apart and parse and think about who, what belongs to what. And Jesus says, you know, all things are God. You figure it out. Let's begin. The beginning was God. You answer the question. And it's it's funny. It is a joke. It's, it's really funny. So I'll, I'll I'll wrap up with just a few lines, and it'll be obvious to uh, a lot of the readers of Scripture. It's almost as if it could have begun with, or Jesus could have said, Jesus wraps up something like this in his basic statement. I think this is why jaws dropped. I think Jesus said in his short statement, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined the measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Upon what were the bases sunk? Who laid a cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who shut the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, the thick darkness, the swaddling band prescribed limits to it. Have you commanded the morning since your days begun? Have you? I could read all of chapter 38 of Job. And I think Jesus' simple words, these are people that study the scripture, that what the joke is, he said all of that. He said, I've got a footnote for you. Genesis 1, Job 38. How about uh, the prayer of Jonah inside the fish? See that. And now engage in a life of Christian discernment. As you go about your business, and don't go, to, by the way, don't elevate your business of life to make yourself God, to make yourself creator. Who are you? That, that's what came to mind. Well, I see we're about out of time, but let me just go around to see if there's any closing comments, uh, Sarah, Bill. We good? All right. Well, Palmasia Presbyterian Church is at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmacia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. Check that out. We recommend it to you for great lessons, discussions of the lectionary, differences of opinion, great sermons, outstanding music, prayer. Uh, Check that out. And uh, we always like hearing from you. Uh, The questions that we come up with, and Bill came up with three dandies today, are or for your use. So let us know if they're working for you in your classes, your discussion groups, and you're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.